Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. Before getting into the episode today, I wanted to share with you the exciting news that the podcast now has a website runfitraj.com. That's r u n f i t r a j.com. Please check out the website. Uh, it has all the podcast. It has all the show notes. There is a very useful search function we can, uh, where you can search the various episodes and the show notes. And do send me any feedback or questions uh, that you have. That's runfitraj.com. In today's episode, uh, we have with us uh, Alex Hutchison from Toronto. This interview is being published in two parts and this is part one. In this part, we talk about Alex's breakthrough 1500 meter race. Then we talk about the concept of central governor, which is basically what limits the performance of any endurance athlete and also discuss whether this is a conscious thing or whether this is an unconscious thing. Then we talk about pain, where we discuss the difference between pain threshold and pain tolerance and then how to go about improving your pain tolerance. Alex is an award-winning journalist. He's an ex-national level runner for Canada and he has a PhD in physics from Cambridge University. I must emphasize this, not physiology or exercise physiology. And he writes a very popular col uh, column for the outside magazine called Sweat Science. Uh, but mostly he's, uh, I think, well, most well-known around the world for his book, Endure, Mind, Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Uh, it's an outstanding book that I have thoroughly enjoyed and read and reread many passages and many chapters. The book basically examines, in, in, in my view, the factors that contribute to the limit of human performance, not just physical, but both physical and mental and the connection between the two. Uh, it is replete with great anecdotes, and but it's also backed by uh, several examples of uh, solid scientific research spanning a century. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks a lot, Raj. It's great to be here. So, Alex, uh, why don't we begin with you giving uh, in, uh, the listeners a quick overview of your journey so far and how, as I said in our pre-show, uh, a PhD in physics from Cambridge is now one of the preeminent voices of uh, exercise physiology, and you write quite a lot. So, what what was the journey like? <laughs> well, it was it was an unexpected journey. I guess is probably the best best way to describe it. I didn't I didn't set out in uh, when I was in high school or when I was in university to to try and uh, be able to have a career writing about stuff that I was interested in, like the, the intersection between science and endurance sports. Um, if I'd set out on that path, I probably would have taken a, a different route. And um, I guess, ironically enough, maybe I wouldn't have gotten to where to, to the same place if I'd tried to get here. So there's a lot of serendipity. Um, like, as you said, I, I started out studying physics, I, I did uh, an undergraduate degree, and then a uh, a, a doctorate in physics. Um, and actually after my, after my PhD in physics, I, I spent another two and a half years uh, as a postdoctoral researcher in, uh, in, in physics. So I, I traveled quite far along the physics route. Um, and that was my main professional, um, path. And in parallel to that, I was competing as a runner. Uh, I started I mean, I've been a runner as long as I can remember, uh, you know, as a kid, I, I always, enjoyed running and or I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but I always, um, I always ran and I started competing more seriously. I started training when I was about 15 
And um, in during university, I, I reached a sort of national level. And my best, probably my best performance overall, is I ran fifteen hundred meters in three forty two, which is right around a four minute mile, um, which gave me the hope that I was just sort of um, perhaps it, you know with, with another breakthrough, I could compete internationally and make the Olympics, things like that. And so I I, I trained quite seriously. Um, I would say my my most serious training, on, at least on the track, was until I was about twenty eight. And, uh, at that point I had a, it, it, that, this was 2004. I had a, I, I got a stress fracture in my, in my lower back, in my sacrum three months before the Olympic trials. So, uh, and I'd been injured the, the, before the previous Olympic trials too. Um, so I, I, um, at that point I sort of decided it's time to not to stop running, but to stop making running the most important thing in my life. And, that was also a, a good opportunity or, or a good time to think about what I did want to do in my life because I'd been doing physics, but pouring my passion into running, you know, running was what I thought about and cared about and dreamt about. And so I didn't necessarily have the same feeling for physics. And so I, I, I wanted to, as I left running or as I sort of backed off a little bit from running, I wanted to find a way of doing something professionally that, that I was as passionate about. Um, and I didn't really know, it, it took me a long time to sort of figure out what might be a reasonable path. And my, my, the, my basic decision came to, or my basic th thinking process was that journalism might be an opportunity to be able to explore lots of different areas and to, uh, including the areas that I was most passionate about. Cause I, I had come to the conclusion I was not going to be a world famous runner, uh, and so I, could, I wasn't going to be able to make my living going around running. I wasn't fast enough. But maybe if I um, uh, became a journalist, I could write about running. And similarly, I, there's other things I enjoy, things like music. Maybe I could write about music. Maybe I could write about travel, all, all sorts of things I enjoyed. So that was the sort of pipe dream that I started with at 28. Uh, I, I then returned and did a, a one-year master's degree in journalism just to learn the ropes and and uh and from that point i you know i i didn't didn't then just start writing writing about running i started at the bottom i i was a uh an intern for a year and a half at a daily newspaper in ottawa canada um when you're an intern you're you do whatever is required and that means writing about uh car accidents and and uh i remember one the story that sort of sums up my experience is I, re I remember having to cover a dog fashion show, uh, <laughs> going and writing about all the, the outfits the dogs were wearing. Um, and so for a year and a half, I wrote, I think I wrote something like 350 stories in that year and a half. So I learned to, to or I got a lot of practice writing. I, uh, I learned to write quickly, to hit deadlines, to understand what an assignment was and, and, and do and to talk to people who didn't want to necessarily want to talk to me. Uh, and then after that, I partially because there were no jobs available at that time, I became a freelance journalist. This was 2006. And, and even from there, it was, it was still a very slow process. I, I started out writing about, I, you know, for anyone who would pay me, basically. So I was, uh, the, there was a, there's a, an, an accounting newsletter called The Bottom Line uh, in, in Canada. And I, that was one of my first contacts. I wrote about accounting rules and conferences. And, and uh, but I started to pitch stories about the stuff that I knew and, and cared about. And so I had some breakthroughs writing about physics, but also writing about uh, running and endurance. Um, and even while I was at the newspaper, the Ottawa Citizen, I, I was able to do a little bit of writing about running. And, and that's where some of my best writing came, because clearly I had a, 
sort of deep reservoir of knowledge and passion about it because I'd spent my life thinking about it. And so that was a sort of signal to me that, oh yeah, if you write about the things you care about, you end up with a better article. And because I had a science training, I thought maybe my edge is not just writing about who won the last race, but about why and how, and, 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 and also as a chance to explore my own curiosity, I was still running, of course. And I still, I think like, like anybody who runs, I had questions about, uh, why is it that some days I, I, I seem to be able to push myself harder than other days? And why, why is it that it's not just this sort of mathematical formula that tells you exactly how fast you'll be able to run? And so anyway, I'm, I'm t- this is a long answer to your question, but, but, uh, um, from there, it just sort of built that I, I be started to write more and more about the science of running, and I got more and more interested in it, and the science of endurance more generally. And I realized that that it's not just a question of, it wasn't just a question of going to the library and getting a textbook out and say, oh, here are all the answers about the science of running. It turns out that scientists don't know the answer at this point. That they don't have all the, the solutions or the or the, the the knowledge about what defines our limits. And so that made it even more interesting that it was an area of science that, that was and continues to evolve and continues to be the subject of, of some pretty uh, uh, spirited debates among scientists trying to understand, uh, you know, which of the various theories out there is, is correct. So I've been, I've been covering that, I guess, for about, let's say a little more than a decade now, 12 or 13 years, I've been writing about this area. And over that time, um, I've, I've gotten, uh, deeper and deeper into it and, and sort of, uh, as you said, I, I, my, my PhD is in physics, definitely not physiology, um, but, but I've, I've now spent long enough covering it that I, th- I think I have a pretty good handle on, on not what the answers are, but what the important questions are that people are trying to figure out. And that's, that's what I sort of try and continue covering on a, on a weekly basis, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, one of the things that you touched upon while speaking was the your 1500 meter timing and there is quite a fascinating story behind that and uh, you know the fact that for i think 4 years you struggled to break the 4 minute uh, 4 minute barrier and uh, you know that uh, that in itself uh, the story itself is interesting but that also led to picking your curiosity so to speak into what really happened and what really went through so can you just share uh, w- what was that about sure yeah so i i uh... So first of all, the, uh, I think most people are familiar with the four minute mile, and I should clarify that what we're talking about here is the four minute fifteen hundred meters, which is uh, the the fifteen hundred is typically about seventeen seconds slower than a mile. So it's sort of a poor man's four minute mile barrier, <laughs> uh, and but it's a, you know it's a it's an important threshold and a difficult one. And when I was I think it was about sixteen, I ran four oh two, and you know this was a year or so after a year a little over a year after I started training seriously. So to me, it seemed fairly clear that I was going to break four minutes the next year and, and get well under it, that I was on a trajectory, but I sort of stalled out at, at the four minute mark. And, and as you said, for, for the next four years, I ran 401 or 402 every year. So by the time I was 20 years old, my best time was still 401. And in, the, you know, we're, we're talking in, in to some extent about physical limits and things like that. So by the time I was 20 and I'd been training hard for five years and I was running 401 or 402 every year, I had the sense that I was bumping up against the limits of what my body was capable of. I was, I was confident that if I could get it together and have a good day, I could run 359, but it didn't, I, I, it seemed to be sort of stretching the limits of credulity that I could run 10 seconds faster than that because I'd been training hard and racing and over and over again, I kept running similar times. And what ended up happening 
was it's actually not in the circumstances you'd expect. It was in a totally meaningless race with no competition, nobody else who was ready to break four minutes uh, in a race that I was almost going to not not even bother trying. I was just going to try and jog it. Um, but I saw in the race before mine, I saw one of my teammates go out uh, and in the women's 1500 and run a very fast time all by yourself. And I thought, oh, I should just, why am I being so precious about this? I should, I should go out and run as hard as I could. And I actually got a little overexcited and I went out very, very fast for the first lap. And this was an indoor track. So every 200 meters and, and you need to run about 32 seconds per 200 meters to run a four minute, I mean, you need to run exactly 32 seconds to run a four minute 1500. And, uh, but I went out in, in the timekeeper called out 27 seconds when I went through the first lap, which is way, way, way too fast. Um, but what was unexpected or unusual was how good I felt. I thought, oh man, I, that's surprisingly good. I, so I, should, I knew I should try and relax a little bit and ease up. And I came through the second lap. So 400 meters in 57 seconds, which is still ridiculously fast. It, that's like world record pace. I, I still feel pretty good. So you know, and this went on for the first three laps. I just, you know, there was a disconnect between how my body felt and what the, the feedback I was getting about how fast I was going. And so by the time I, after three laps, I just sort of thought something very special is going on today. And, you know, don't waste this opportunity and, and just put your head down and run. And so I, I, I sort of stopped paying attention to the splits because they were actually to the, to the split times because they no longer made sense to me. They were way ahead of what I thought I could be doing. And I just put my head down and ran as hard as I could. And I ended up crossing the line in 352.4. So it was a nine-second personal best uh, after four years of running the same times over and over again. Wow. And the, 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 the punchline is that um, when I was celebrating after with some, with some friends or with some teammates, one of whom had taken, had timed my laps for me so that I, cause I, you know, liked, uh, as an obsessive guy, I liked to put my race splits in my training log and analyze them and graph them in Lotus one, two, three, and things like that. Um, and I was sort of marveling to him. I can't believe how fast I started. I can't believe I went out in, in, you know, 50, 27 seconds for the first lap. And he said, no, no, you didn't go out in 27. You were maybe 30 or 31. I was like, what? And so, you know, and I trust my friend's timekeeping more than I trust the guy who was just yelling the splits out at the finish line. And and so obviously the time, that timekeeper had missed the start or for some reason he was three seconds behind and he had basically tricked me into thinking I was going faster than I was. And as a result, he'd sort of disconnected my, uh, you know, I was, I'm the type of very overly analytical runner who's paying attention to what the watch says and what, what the data tells me I should be capable of doing instead of just doing it. And so that, that moment allowed me to sort of disconnect from all these sort of expectations and preconceptions about what I was capable of and, uh, and have this huge breakthrough. And then the postscript to that breakthrough is that in my next attempt to, to run a fast 1500, I ran 349. And in the race after that, I ran 344. So I had this, all of a sudden, once I realized I was capable of way more than I thought, all of a sudden I, I, you know, I just smashed through that barrier and became a completely different runner in the course of th- three different races. Um, now he, the, the even better postscript would be that, and then I discovered the power of the mind and I went on to, to, to run at the Olympics. And that, that's not how, you know, just cause you suddenly recognize that it, 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 that, it didn't get to that fairy tale level. No, exactly. It's, it's already improbable enough as it is. And that, that's all I got. And I didn't actually get, you know, so that I ran 344 that year and the next year I ran 342 and I never ended up running faster. Um, yeah, you know, which so, as you said, is close to a, close to a sub four mile, right? So, uh, 
yeah. or it is at the sub four mile level. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it, as it happens, if you if you plug in three forty two point four three, which is my best, if you plug that into the IAAF uh, official conversion tables or equivalence tables, they claim it's equivalent to a mile in four flat four minutes zero point zero one seconds. So okay. I, I find that very uh, very frustrating. But but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm very proud of the of that performance. But it's also, and this is one thing every runner discovers, right? That whatever whatever you do, even if you exceed your wildest expectations, there's always another rung on the ladder. And so as soon as I ran that, I thought, I'm only four seconds away from the Olympic standard at the time. I, or actually only two seconds from the B standard at the time. I can do that. You know, two, I've just improved 17 seconds. Why can't I improve two more seconds? Um, and uh, that's... In terms of just general lessons of life, I think one thing running taught me is that no matter uh, what, how well things go or what you accomplish, you will always immediately recalibrate and say, well, what's the next thing? And so it's important to try and resist that and actually enjoy it. And so I, I remind myself, you know, what? I'm really proud that I ran 342, even though I never took the next step and ran, ran the Olympic standard. You Did you ever, uh, ever thank the official timekeeper? <laughs> I, you know what? I've, I've often wished, I've often wished I could, I don't even know who it was because often, you know, you just show up at the race and the gun goes and I don't know who the guy yelling the times was. I would love to know who the timekeeper was so I could ask. What did happen? How did you, like? How are you calling out these times that were so wrong? And thank you, but but how? And and you know this this was in the race was in Quebec, which is the French part of Canada. So my first theory was that oh he was trying to translate in his head, and it was taking him three seconds to figure out that Vincent was uh, was twenty seven. But I I don't know exactly what the story is. I don't know who you know who or why that happened. But I'm very grateful that it did happen. Before moving on, I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes, but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show. So please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review, like for example, CastBox, please do that either. We also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com and also if you have any comments or suggestions to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. You can follow all podcast related updates on Instagram at the handle runningandfitnesswithraj or on Facebook on the Facebook group Running and Fitness with Raj. Now let's get back to the show. Okay. Now, so this kind of shows the power of the mind and uh, power of the brain. And it's one of the, you know, the central points of your book as well, the whole central governor theory, right? I mean, the concept that whether their brain decides the performance or not. I mean, I don't think there is now a disagreement that the mind or the brain plays a significant part in uh, the limits to human performance. The key seems to be, or the key uh, debate seems to be whether it is conscious as in can you do something about it or is it completely unconscious as in it is something which you have little or no control uh, over so can you just take us through what the central governor theory is and then uh, i know probably you don't have a you know very strong view one way or the other about on the conscious versus unconscious debate but would be would love to hear your thoughts on uh, thoughts on that sure um you know you know i'll, I'll start by just saying uh, 
one thing that, that you said that pretty much everyone agrees that the brain plays a role in limits. And I think that's true, but I'll, I'll add a nuance that I've sort of, I've got some pushback since, since the book was published in that there is a sort of more traditional view of the brain's role in limits, which is just that your limits are defined by your body, but some people aren't, let's call it tough enough to, to get close to their limits. And so if you talk to someone like there's a physiologist named Andy Jones in, in Britain who worked very closely with, among other people, he worked very closely with the Nike's break, Nike breaking two race, but he also worked very closely with Paula Radcliffe when she was running her best marathons. And Andy's take is that if, if you put a, a great runner in the laboratory and test their physical capacity, test essentially their, their pipes and their plumbing, their ability to deliver oxygen to their muscles. That'll tell you how fast they can run the marathon. And he, you know, he says he, he put Paula in the lab before each of her marathons and he was able to predict within, you know, less than a minute, more or less what she'd be capable of running. And she went out and did that. And that's possible because she, he does say she was a uniquely tough, you know, she was a runner who was willing to suffer and suffer and suffer that when he, when he would do a VO2 max test with her, uh, that it, whereas most people a VO2 max test is a test it's on a treadmill and it's getting faster and faster and you keep going until you can't continue anymore and most people the scientists get a feeling of like I think this person's going to fall off in the next 30 seconds because they're really really struggling and they know so they get ready to to end the test and with Paula Radcliffe apparently it was always um they'd be okay she's about to fall off the treadmill and this no she's hanging on no another minute Oh no, she wants it to get faster. Okay. And that she would be able to keep going for a, a few minutes beyond what normal elite athletes could do. So there is that view of, of human, of, of the mental side, which is just that, um, only the truly elite reach their physical limits, but they are at that point limited mostly by their, their physical side rather than their mental side. Um, that's a little different than, than what, what the central governor idea that you mentioned that, and that I, that I think I, I tend to be more inclined to believe, which is that when, whenever you run a race that's at your ultimate limits and it feels like you couldn't have gone any farther, that in fact, it's not that there was any single physical thing that was holding you back, but actually it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not that your muscles couldn't contract any harder when you're racing a 10 K and you run your best time. It's not that you were, totally incapable of getting any more oxygen to your muscles. It's that your brain essentially decided that's hard enough and we're going to, we're going to put the brakes on. And that's the, the sort of core of this idea of the central governor. Governor is a sort of antiquated word from the 1920s. That means basically the brakes, the, uh, a, a limiting, a limiting system that, that, for, for, that, that for the safety or good of the organism or of the machine, um, you, you know, you might have a car with a governor on it that prevents it from going more than 200 kilometers an hour. Well, humans, according to this theory, have some sort of governor that's not with a specific speed setting or anything, but that says, we're not going to let you get all the way to the, to the limits of what you're capable of. Because if you do, if you just keep running until you keel over, you're going to do yourself some serious damage. I, and it could be if you think about it in evolutionary terms or whatever, it could be that if you're, if you allow, if you allow yourself to just run until there's literally no more oxygen available, then your heart's going to, or your brain is going to run out of oxygen. You're going to be brain damaged or you're going to have a heart attack. Um, or it could be something more sort of indirect that the, the individuals, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago who were willing to just keep chasing the, the, the antelope across the savannah until they dropped 
those are not the people who made it back to the campfire and passed on their genes. Those people died in the desert. Whereas people who, who learned to sort of live to fight another day to say, okay, there's, we shouldn't ever completely exhaust ourselves. We should always keep a little bit of reserve so we can, what, you know, make it back to the campfire or, or try hunting again the next day. They ended up uh, being dominant and, and, and surviving. And so we have this in, whether it's a, uh, you know, a, a strict limit or just an instinct that makes it ex- increasingly unpleasant or increasingly difficult to keep pushing when we when we get uh, towards our limits. So that that's the sort of big picture idea that that when you reach your limits, it's because your brain thinks you shouldn't go any farther, not because your body is completely incapable of going farther. And so then, if you see you know your your child trapped under a car, or if you're in the in, a, in the Olympic Stadium, sprinting for a victory or whatever, you're able to unlock some of this reserve, uh, some of this that your brain is is protecting for your own safety. Um, and that idea, when I first heard it, and it was it's it's been most it was in the '90s, a, a South African scientist named Tim Noakes is the one who sort of started advancing this idea. And when I first heard it, which probably not till a decade later, it just felt. Uh, it felt like an accurate description of, of, of my experiences racing and training, because there'd be times in training when I would say, okay, I'm going to run as fast as I can for 800 meters. And I'd run like, you know, sometime, let's say 205 or something. And then, you know, five days later I'd enter a race and I'd run 10 seconds faster for, for, for 800 meters. And it's like, how was that possible? Because I swear when I was in that training session, I was going as hard as I could. So how could something feel maximal, but be totally different? And my body wasn't changing in five days. So, so that, so I, I, I found that central governor picture very compelling, but it's a, it's a very big and broad picture. And once you start to ask more specific questions about, okay, well, how does the brain exert limits? And, and as you said, how do, is this a conscious or an unconscious process? What's, how does this actually work? Then things get very muddy very quickly and, and you realize that it's, it's a very probably complex. very controversial as well right i'm sure there are people in uh, both camps uh, who believe that their uh, theories are very correct in fact one of the fascinating charts from the book is that uh, one on the world records all the distances from 800 meters till 10,000 meters for um, extremely long over decades which show that in pretty much pretty much no world record has come by uh, without a finishing kick. And then the question is, if you have that energy for the finishing kick, uh, how, how much can you, could have you, could have you drawn on that a little earlier, a little earlier, a little earlier, and extended the so-called uh, finishing kick? And it's, it's quite fascinating, uh, that, that part of it. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, to me, it's a source of great frustration is that in a lot of my races, I, I had, I was sort of known, at least in my own mind, for having a strong finishing kick. And, and you know, when you start to th- think more carefully about that, well, that's terrible. Having a strong finishing kick means you had lots of energy. And why couldn't you access it earlier? Or why didn't you access it earlier? It's, it's, a, it's it, because if you, again, if you think of it as a, if you think of the body as a machine, as, as, as it's sort of getting more and more tired, and you, you know, you're as, towards the end of the race is when you should be running the most slowly. And yet you're running the fastest you've run the whole race at the very end of the race. That, 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 that's not the behavior of, you know, a car or something that's running out of gas. 
that's the behavior of, of, of something far more complex. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I should, I should mention here, just given the timing that the day we're talking here is, is what three days after the world record for 5,000 meters was set by Joshua Cheptegay in, in Monaco, a new Monaco, he, he ran 1235. And what was actually most interesting about, to me, uh, about this race is that the pacing was very even. And this is, as you said, compared to the the history of world records over distances like 5,000 meters, usually it's, it's, you start fast, then there's a, a set, a steady pace in the middle, and then you finish fast. And Cheptegate did that a little bit, but it was much more even than normal. Um, and that may be that to set a world record in the modern era, there's no more, you can't afford to have this sort of uneven pacing. But another interesting thing is that there was, they were using pacing lights on the track. Right. So they had a, a light whipping around the track at exactly world record pace. And so I wonder if that's a, you know, you'd think that when you're talking about the greatest runners in the world, like, ah, you know, that won't make a difference. They know how to pace themselves evenly, but we have this sort of deep drive that preserves energy. And so maybe having the, this light that they know is going evenly, uh, maybe that played a role in helping him to avoid this pattern that we're so wired to follow, which is to save some energy for the finish. In, in fact, ahead of our chat today, I tried to pull out the split for exactly two and a half kilometers. I mean, and split it evenly. I couldn't get it at, for two and a half kilometers. I mean, you have all the lap times, so maybe yeah. I have to do a little more uh, digging. In fact, I wanted to specifically ask you this question. Good, you brought it up that, uh, in fact, I think in one of your uh, podcasts uh, I listened to recently, you talk about the fact that it is narrowing, that whole finishing kick, uh, and yeah. it's becoming more and more even uh, even even split so uh, the w- one final question on the central governor before we move on to other topics so do you have a strong view on this whether it's conscious or unconscious where do, where do you land on this uh, debate sorry i'm putting you on a spot yeah no no that's fine um i, I my, my view tends to be uh, dictated by whoever i spoke to most recently in a sense <laughs> like i i i'm a I, I, it, this is maybe an advantage and a disadvantage for a science journalist or maybe an advantage for a science journalist is that um, my mind is easily—I don't want to say easily swayed. I don't want to sound like an idiot, but um, I—I am—I see the strength of the arguments made by different people. So I, I don't—I don't tend to be heavily invested in one theory, and I—and I actually try to really avoid being heavily invested in one theory because once you do that, you, you start to interpret all the evidence. In the, in the context of defending the what your the your own your previously existing beliefs, um, I find that so the, you you alluded to this sort of conscious versus unconscious distinction, and maybe I should just say a couple words about that. That this is the idea of okay, let's say I'm out, I'm racing my great rival in a 10k, and somewhere around six or seven k, he or she starts to pull away from me, and I have a decision to make and 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 let's say the rival's a little stronger than me and i i can't stay the a gap opens up i'm falling behind even though i'm highly motivated and the question is am i incapable of going with that rival am i am i is it just truly i cannot keep, prevent that gap from closing or is this in some sense much as i hate to admit it a conscious decision that okay i still have 3k to go i need to make it to the finish line I can't make it to the finish line at this pace, so I'm going to have to allow, consciously allow my rival to to get away from me because I I can't. So is it a decision or is it forced on me? And my intuition as 
uh, a competitor is that it's forced on me that there are times when I'm I'm trying to override all pacing instincts. I'm trying to not save anything. I'm telling myself I don't care if I make it to the finish line. I'm going to keep go keep keep try and keep up with this person until I die. And yet a gap opens up. And so to me it's it's totally involuntary. But when I look at the scientific literature, I actually find the 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 evidence for the the alternate view that this is a more or less a conscious decision that it's based on our our perception of how hard we're working versus how hard we think we should be working. I find that that viewpoint more compelling. Um, and the, 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 so, so I think scientifically I find, and, and there's a researcher named Samuel Marcora who's done a lot of work in this area. And I think he's um, maybe the most talented experimentalist working in this area that he, he has a talent for identifying, well, here are my ideas. What are the implications of my ideas? How can we test whether this actually happens or not? Rather, because theories are great, and I love theories. But at a certain point, you have, you, and, and you, you know, you can do things like let's look at world record splits and see if that uh, lines up with my theory. But at a certain point, you need to do some experiments to to try and disprove your theory. And I think Marcora has been the most effective at doing that. That being said, the final sort of hedge that I'll add is that once you start to really dig into it, I think the differences between some of these differences are maybe less significant than they seem. Because if you if you say, okay, if you if you take the Samuel Marcora's belief that it's it's conscious, a conscious decision, well that doesn't mean everything is conscious. There are things that are unconsciously affecting your perception of effort. There are things uh, you know, whether it's the temperature of the room or the the thoughts in your head, um uh, uh, there are things that are altering your perception of effort without you being aware of it, or you know whether it's taking a caffeine versus a placebo that that does the same thing. So there's a con- there's unconscious factors involved in the conscious decision, and if you think about if, if, think of it as unconscious, well, there's still conscious things that matter. When it's unconscious, you're still consciously deciding whether you accelerate or decelerate, or how fast you're going to try and go, or who you're going to try and race against. Uh, or, or whether you're going to take a caffeine pill. So there's all sorts of conscious factors that play into the so-called unconscious, uh, uh, you know, inability to continue. So ultimately the, the line between conscious and unconscious gets very blurred and it's more a question of how, what language in, in a sense, I think it's more a question of what language we choose to explain it rather than any fundamental differences. The truth is we make decisions when we're running. We, and those decisions, uh, are are on some level conscious, but those decisions are also affected in by many many unconscious th- factors, things that we're not aware of or that we may not be aware of unless we choose to focus on them. So there's there's always going to be a mix of both. How's that for okay. for walking down the middle of the the controversy? No, that's fine. I mean, I I didn't uh, you know I I didn't expect you to anyway take a, a you know one side or the other, and it was very useful to get your. Uh, perspective on this and then in part two of the book you go on to the you know you you talk about six uh, limits to physical performance uh, which is pain muscle oxygen heat thirst and fuel uh, I want I mean obviously we don't have time to go through each and every one of them but a couple of points I want to pick up starting with pain right so uh, you make a clear distinction between the thresh- pain threshold and pain tolerance. I mean, often when when we talk of you know pain, we don't uh, we all feel pain, but we don't really in our mind make a clear uh, distinction. So uh, first, let's start with uh, the the point around 
pain threshold? I mean, is it similar to for both recreational athletes and the uh, and the elites? And then how does uh, how does that correlate with uh, pain uh, tolerance, which I guess is what will uh, determine your performance uh, in in at the, on the on the on the field? Yeah, sure. So let, let's start just by by sort of making clear what those two things are. Um, let's say I. Uh, test your pain sensation by giving you an, an escalating series of electric shocks or something like that. And it starts with something very mild and you'll just say, no, I, I can feel the tickle, but that doesn't hurt. But it, then it starts getting stronger. They'll, they'll, there will come a point when you'll say, yeah, okay, you know, that hurts. Um, but that, you know, you're, 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 you'll be willing to, it's not the, if, if I'm motivating you adequately, if I'm saying I'll give you a dollar for every shock you're willing to submit, you'll say, okay, that hurts. But yeah, you can keep going. And the shocks will keep getting stronger. And then at a certain point, you'll say, okay, that's all I can tolerate. That's, that's, that's too much. You have to stop. So pain threshold is the point at which you say, that hurts. Pain tolerance is the point at which you say, stop. And what's really interesting in, in, a, in a bunch of studies is that, because you know, there, there's this whole mythology about the champion is the person who's willing to suffer a little bit more, who's willing to, to push themselves, to punish themselves, to, to push themselves. And there's some great kernels of truth to that, but there's also, it's, it, it's definitely, it's not that the champion does not feel pain. And so what a bunch of studies have shown is that pain threshold is roughly the same in whether it's an average person on the street or uh, a champion athlete. At, this, at roughly the same point, they start to say, yeah, you know, that hurts. But when you do, when you, when you then say, okay, but what, what point do they quit? Then there's a huge difference. The, the, Trained athletes, uh, and particularly high-level athletes, are willing to continue enduring pain far longer and to far higher levels than the average person off the street. Um, and, and this is not just—it's not just that you know swimmers are used to enduring the pain of swimming, and runners are used to enduring the pain of running. These are these can be totally unrelated forms of pain. Things like uh, you know sharp. Uh, not needles, but sharp uh, jabs being poked into you, or one of the one of the standard ways they use it in in experiments of inflicting pain is they put a blood pressure cuff around your arm and squeeze it shut so there's no blood getting to your arm, and then make you, you talk do... about that with uh, with that uh, explain that with the Scottish swimmer study, right? The, the, yeah, the, that's the exactly what they. So so it's uh, yeah, cutting off the flow of of oxygen to your arm and then doing a series of contractions. So, so just squeezing your fist, but there's no oxygen. So that gets very painful very quickly. And so then you have a simple measures. How many times can you squeeze your fist before you say that's too much? And as you're mentioning this, this Scottish swimmer study, which is the, really the classic study in this area, it was in 19, early 1980s. They tested national team swimmers from Scotland, club level swimmers from Scotland, and just sort of you know recreational people on the street who could swim. And they found this very, you know, the higher level of the swimmer, the more they could tolerate. But what's, you know, the sort of the, the other thing that's interesting about this is because you, then you sort of say, well, I wonder if these elite athletes are just wired to be able to handle pain or there's something about it. But what's interesting is that when they test the high level swimmers at different points in the season, there's a difference in their pain, th in their pain tolerance. They're able to tolerate more at the peak of their season when they're ready to race and if you test them after their off season, when they haven't even been training, their their pain tolerance is at its lowest. So this isn't just something you you have or that you develop and keep forever. It's something that you're constantly working on 
through the process of training is your your ability to tolerate pain. And there may be lots of different mechanisms, but I, I think what most scientists think is that the dominant reason athletes are able to to tolerate more pain is 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 mostly psychological. It's mostly learning to to to, to tolerate discomfort. And there's a lot of different ways that can happen. You know, you can learn to distract yourself to think about something else. I think there's also a really important role for just under being familiar with pain and understanding that it doesn't mean you're going to die. You know, when you when, if you fir- if you start exercising for the first time, if let's say you start a you're going from couch to 5k, and you start doing some runs, and you feel all these unfamiliar sensations, you know, you're pant, you're panting, you're out of breath, your legs are, are screaming, and, and, you know, your heart is pounding. Uh, you might justifiably be worried. It's like, uh, am I going to die? Like, am I, am I doing damage? This is, this is like nothing I've experienced. And so you're likely to back off a little bit. And the more you train, the more you run, you just get familiar. You're like, okay, I'm, I know this feeling. It doesn't mean I'm going to die. It just means that I'm going so fast that I'm going to have to slow down soon, but maybe I can delay that for an extra. I can keep going for another minute, another two minutes. And gradually you push back, not just your physical limits, you're getting, you're getting fitter, but you push back your, uh, willingness or your ability to tolerate discomfort. Uh, and this, as these studies show, this extends not just to discomfort in the context of exercise, but if someone is putting a blood pressure cuff around your arm and making you suffer or whatever, I I mean, I think it also applies to discomfort in day-to-day life. You know, if you're on a crammed subway train and, you know, and it's hot and you're dealing with some unpleasant situation, you, if you're, if, if you're an athlete, if you're a runner, if you're someone who trains and deals with discomfort, you have a, a, an arsenal, you have a mental arsenal of ways of handling discomfort of saying, you know, this is temporary, it's not going to be forever, I'm not enjoying it, but it's it's going to pass. And so that's, I think, a really valuable uh, sort of lesson that we all get from from running or from others. In fact, other it's quite sports. fascinating, because, uh, uh, you know, there, there are qu- quite a few points in this, which I have taken away. One is, uh, the you know it's not it's not obvious to people that the pain threshold is similar you know the the pain threshold for a well trained athlete was as a recreational athlete is similar however their pain tolerance is higher so that's the first first difference second the pain tolerance varies during the season so when they are in peak peak training is when they can tolerate the maximum pain which means clearly it is something you are learning or in, in there is some mechanism by which that hard training is helping you deal with uh, a uh, higher level of uh, pain or discomfort, whatever you want to uh, call, call it. And another interesting thing which you talked about in the book is also, unless you experience, uh, you, you talked about a study where people had the same sort of physiological adaptation in terms of Im- improvement in VO2 max, etc. But one set did medium intensity training and the other did high intensity training. And when it came to the high in- people who did the high intensity training, which means they experienced clearly more discomfort during training, their race performances were significantly better. So that I found to be quite fascinating. So the, the my takeaway in this has been that, look, if you have to push that pain, uh, you know, if you have to improve your pain tolerance, then go through some pain during your uh, going through, go through. I mean, the long and short of it on a practical basis is uh, that's the way I, I look at it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a good summary. And that, that yeah, there's no shortcut or necessarily easy way that that if 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 someone is trying to sell you a, a a method that says here we can get you in shape and get you just as good but you it'll it's it's easy you don't have to 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 go through any discomfort there's certainly there's certainly ways of getting physically fit of getting health benefits 
uh, without suffering. And so I, I should, uh, yeah, I don't want to overstate the case. And and that, but if you want to learn to be able to push yourself, if you want to b- push your limits as opposed to just sort of, you know, g- get a little bit fitter, then yeah, pushing your limits always involves some discomfort. And if you don't do that in training, then you're not going to be ready to 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 do it as effectively in when the you know whether in the heat of competition or whatever the, the situation is this concludes part one of this interview next week we will be publishing part two and i highly urge you to check it out in part two we will cover alex's views on hydration we talk about how to reduce the perception of effort to improve your performance alex was one of the few journalists in the world who had access to the breaking two project of nike where they attempted to break the uh, two hour marathon in 2017 he talks to us about various insights from that including the effect of the new nike shoe the vaporfly shoe then alex also gives his outlook on when in an actual race he expects the two hour ra- uh, barrier in the marathon to be broken plus the quiz and alex's recommendations on uh, various other uh, resources. So do check out that episode when it gets published next week. Thank you very much to all the listeners. Please check out the podcast website runfitraj.com that is R-U-N-F-I-T-R-A-J.com It has all the podcasts, it has all the show notes and there is a very useful search function as well. You can reach out to me on my social media handles which are running and fitness with Raj on both Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email me on runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. Please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show. I also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Please also leave a review on iTunes as it will help enormously to grow the show. We will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice. Stay safe, stay healthy. Until the next show, goodbye.